Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Redeemer Church. Redeemer Church is located in Fate, Texas, and her mission is to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into the surrounding communities and across the globe. We hope that this week's message will bring glory to God by building you up and results in you looking more and more like Jesus himself. Well, as Melinda said earlier, there are prayer cards around you where you are seated. Uh, there's also a form you can access online to submit prayer requests. Uh, also, <clears throat> on that same prayer card and online as well, there's a place for some guest information. If you have questions about who we are as a church or just want to, some more information, uh, we'd love to send that to you and connect with you. We promise we're not going to inundate you with emails or fill your inbox. We'll send you one email after that. It's your choice if you want to engage any further. So... Um, I did want to update you uh, this morning. Uh, I'd sent out a Next 5 update video a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Next 5 is our capital initiative we launched uh, two years ago this fall. Uh, and we've been slowly receiving gifts towards that over the course of those two years. Uh, the Lord has been slowly providing and we've been uh, able to purchase property. Uh, many of you know that over on Highway 66. Uh, but in that video update, I shared with you kind of the current climate of construction, where we are financially, and I asked you to pray uh, that the Lord might bring in unexpected or unpledged gifts. Uh, and I'm just happy to report to you that last weekend, uh, from a former member who sold a house and moved to be closer to family, we received a $25,000 contribution toward the next five, and so the Lord has answered, begun to answer that prayer. So yeah, that's something to give thanks for. Uh, so grateful for that. And so I just want to make you aware of that. Hopefully that encourages your faith as we continue to trust God to provide all that we need to do all that he's called us to do here in this community. Well, if you've got a Bible this morning, open me to Colossians chapter 4, where we're going to be today. Colossians 4. We'll read verses 2 to 6 together this morning of Colossians chapter 4 as we begin to land the plane here in our series through the book of Colossians, looking at the sufficiency of Christ in everyday life. Uh, Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2, I'll read down through verse 6. It'll be on the screen behind me if you don't have a copy in front of you, and you're welcome to follow along there as well. Colossians 4, beginning in verse 2, the Apostle Paul writes these words, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is God's word. As I was reading this passage and reflecting on it this week, my mind was brought back to uh, Matthew chapter 6, in which the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. And in response, Jesus lays out a pattern for prayer that we know as the Lord's Prayer. And in the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew chapter 6, in the lead up to that, uh, Jesus, in that particular passage, he's not necessarily saying, hey, there's a difference between people who pray and people who don't pray. Rather, in Matthew 6, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray like Christians rather than like pagans. Right? Because even pagans prayed. In fact, in Matthew 6, he says, even the Gentiles pray. But they don't pray in the way that uh, God would have them to pray. 
And so those in their context, they didn't know the God of the Bible, even they prayed, and the same is true today. If you look at the data, the polls, they've researched people across our nation, and the research has held rather consistent over the years, indicating that right around half of Americans, all Americans, regardless of their religious affiliation, would say that they pray in some kind of, with some high degrees of frequency about 50% of Americans, and whenever you lower the level of frequency, right, from maybe five times a week to three times a week or even once a week, that percentage skyrockets to close to 80 to 90% of individuals say they pray with some degree of frequency in their lives, which means that the overwhelming majority of Americans would say they pray in some way, shape, or form. But in, the, in one poll that asks folks to indicate some of the kinds of things they might pray for, I want you to hear what some folks are praying for out there. First, to win the lottery, which I'm sure there was a lot of fervent prayer going on several weeks back when it was at $1.6 billion. To have success in something they put no effort into. I find that with children sometimes. They're praying that they would do well on exams rather than praying that God would give them the discipline to study. (laughs) To keep their secrets and no one would find out what they have done. For God to avenge someone who hurt them or hurt someone that they loved. For their favorite sports franchise to win a championship to find a good parking spot, because who doesn't need a good parking spot at Costco? Not to get caught speeding. (laughs) Lord, please do not let the radar gun detect me. For success in something they know would not please the Lord. Or for someone else to fail in what they are attempting to do. Now listen, not only are there prayers like these that don't align with Scripture being prayed by millions of people across our nation, but so often our prayer lives, our prayer lives may lack the kind of prayer we see modeled and commanded in the Bible. We might not be asking for things that are outside of God's moral will, like some of these things may be. But we might not be asking for things that are near to God's heart, that align with his kingdom agenda. I think so often we're busy trying to build our own kingdoms, and so we're sending our requests up to God based upon our own agendas rather than saying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want my prayers to be formed by your kingdom's agenda, by what is near to your heart, And so, God, would you make what's near to your heart near to my heart? And this morning, as we come to this particular text in Colossians chapter 4, following three chapters of Paul holding high the sufficiency of Jesus for salvation, right? That there's Christ plus nothing, right? You don't add anything to him because as soon as you add anything to him, you diminish from him. So he's held high the sufficiency of Christ and then he's applied that faith into the everyday realities of our life, into our marriages, into our parenting, into our vocations as we saw last week. Now Paul begins to land the plane in his letter to this church at Colossae. And as he lands the plane, he does so by talking about two specific topics. The first is prayer and the second is evangelism, both of which are perhaps woefully lacking in the lives of many 
churches and many Christians in our day and time. And so as Paul lands the plane of Colossians, he draws our attention to these two aspects of faithful Christianity, regardless of what setting Christians may find themselves in, of prayer and evangelism. And that's what I want to draw our attention to this morning as well, and hopefully help us see the connection between those two. So the first thing I want us to see in this passage in Colossians chapter 4 this morning is this, is that Paul calls the church to persist in prayer, to persist in prayer. Now, as soon as we start talking about prayer and evangelism, all of us probably experience some degree of guilt, okay? Because if you ask any Christian, do you pray enough or do you pray like you should, right? Unless, unless they are the least humble Christian on the face of the earth, they will inevitably say, no, I do not. If you ask anyone, do they pray too much, they will say no, right? Because we're all painfully aware of the fact that our prayer lives could be fuller, richer, more dynamic in our fellowship and communion with God. All right, Martin Luther once said to a group of his students, he said, I wish I could get you to pray the way my dog goes after meat, and if, there's any way, if there's any likeness to the way my dog goes after me, that is insatiably, right? Because as soon as I bring anything in off of the grill, my dog is jumping at my heel, heels, following me all the way to the counter, and I set it down, and I begin to cut it up. And then because other members of my family have so graciously fed the dog meat from the table, she comes to the table and begs and whimpers and whines, wanting a bite of whatever it is that we are eating because she can smell the savoriness of that meat. He says, I wish I could get you to pray the way my dog goes after meat. In other words, I wish that your prayer life was fiercely and full like a hungry dog feeding on a piece of chicken or steak or bacon. However, our prayer lives, more often than not, they look less like a dog going after a piece of meat and more like a child with a plate of vegetables in front of it at the dinner table, right? Just kind of picking through, like, I, I know I've got to eat two of these. Which two am I going to eat? As a result, church, I believe we miss so much of what God is willing to do in and through our lives because we simply don't ask him because we're not praying. But the kind of prayer Paul is speaking about here is what we would call petitionary prayer. Now that's a big word for some of us, maybe petitionary, right? But essentially I want you to think of petitionary prayer like this. Whenever a group of people or wants, want to uh, get the board of an organization or a local government to make some kind of change, they start a what? Petition, right? And so they draw up a petition of the request they're submitting to that board or to that council, and then they go around and they get as many people as they can to sign on to that petition. Okay, and so they, they may collect a thousand signatures, they may collect a hundred signatures, they may collect ten signatures, they may only get one other person to agree with them, okay? But they submit that petition to the board or to the council saying, we're requesting this particular change be made in the way the organization operates or the way the city runs. 
they're asking, they're requesting for them to start doing something or to stop doing something. That's a petition. And when we think of petitionary prayer, that's what I want you to think about. It's presenting requests to God that something change, that something different happen, right? That either God would start doing something in my life or the lives of those that I know and love or that he would pull back the reins on and keep something from happening in their life or keep something from happening in my life. That's petitionary prayer. And when Paul speaks of this kind of petitionary prayer, he encourages the church to persist in it by saying, be steadfast in prayer. Or as other translations say, devote yourselves to prayer. Give yourselves to it. Now why would Paul have to tell us to be steadfast, devoted, giving ourselves to asking God that things would be different in our lives, or things would be different in the lives of others. Perhaps, church, he's compelled to command us to this kind of faithfulness in prayer because often it feels like we pray and nothing happens. We pray for that loved one and they still died. We prayed and the job is still lost or another is not yet found. We prayed and bills go unpaid and they continue, debts continue to mount. We prayed and relationships are still shattered. We asked God, but dreams failed to materialize. Rain, can I get an amen, right? It has not yet fallen and crops may fail. We prayed and yet that teenager who was loved and cared for rebelled and abandoned God nonetheless. We prayed. And as a result, we could become disappointed, discouraged, dismayed, even disheartened when our petitions are not answered with the kind of change that we've asked for from God. And so Paul has to remind us, be steadfast in prayer, persist in it, devote yourselves to it, endure through the pain, the trial, the hardship. Many of you know back in February, I had a harebrained idea to run a marathon. Now, it wasn't so harebrained. I'd run a lot of half marathons and and run most of my life as a cross-country athlete in high school and college. Um, you can't tell it now, I've put on about 25 pounds since February, because in that race, uh, three miles in, I felt like somebody shot me in the back of the right calf, which was a telltale sign that I had torn a calf muscle. Now, I had a couple of options. <laughs> I could either just hang up the towel and say, I'm done. However, my family and several friends had come out to witness me on this epic journey, and three and a half miles in, I had tore my right calf muscle, so much so that after the race, there was a pool of bl- like blood that you could see collecting down in my Achilles, in my ankle area, and all the swelling had r- just kind of flowed down to that area. And so three and a half miles in, I'm like, I'm, I'm walking, limping. I'm going to the aid stations asking for, hey, do you have any pain pills, right? 
right? Not the real hard stuff. Just like any Tylenol or any Advil, some ibuprofen, something. They gave me some Tylenol. I called my wife on my watch and I said, hey, I know you're about mile seven. I'm gonna make it to you. Pull whatever you've got in your purse and give it to me on the way by. So she did and I took it and I just continued to put one foot in front of the other and run for 23 and a half miles with a torn calf muscle in varying degrees of pain, all because I wanted to finish the race, primarily because I had opened the finisher t-shirt the night before (laughs) that they had already given to us. And I thought, if I'm going to wear that with any kind of integrity, I've got to cross the finish line. And so I did. But in varying degrees of pain, I just kept putting one foot in front of the other and moving forward for the next 23 and a half miles. And whenever I think about prayer, persisting in prayer, being steadfast in prayer, I'm I'm reminded of that reality, that it's sometimes through heart-wrenching experiences that we're still called to persist in prayer, petitioning God for Him to do something. No matter how much it hurts, no matter how difficult it may be. And I think one of the reasons God does that is because it's in that crucible of petitioning Him, continuing in steadfastness and prayer, even though things are not changing around us the way that we would want them to, is because in the midst of that prayer, not only does God change the things that are around us, but He changes us. What's in us? I found the observations from Sam Storms really helpful this week. He's a, a retired pastor from Oklahoma City. As I thought about steadfastness in prayer, he makes several observations about why God would command this kind of steadfastness in prayer. He said, first, steadfastness in prayer, this endurance in prayer, it undercuts our presumptions. He said, We're, we assume that God always ought to always do what what we want, when we want it, and how we want it because we're a presumptuous people. However, when God delays or answers in a way different than what we had asked for, it teaches us that any answer at all from God is sheer grace. Second, he says, steadfast prayer, it cultivates our dependence upon God. I don't know about you, but by nature, I'm a pretty self-reliant individual. By nature, I'm a pretty self-sufficient person. And whenever God delays or He answers to the contrary of our petitions, He teaches us that He is the only source and supply of all good things. It doesn't come from us, but it comes from Him. Third, he said, steadfast prayer creates a mindset in which we can properly receive what God has to give. See, often it is the case not that God is reluctant to give, but that we're not ready to receive. I want you to consider something. What would your life be like if your parents had given you everything you ever asked for in the moment that you asked for it? It'd be a train wreck. (laughs) Every parent in the room knows that be a train wreck. Like if, you, if your child who's nine years old said, Dad, I want to take the car to town to get ice cream. You say, okay, son, here you go. Here's the keys. Right? It's not going to end well. 
And if everything we ever asked God for, if he gave it to us in that moment, there are so many things, even good things, that we're just not prepared for yet because our character has not been formed to handle them. Fourth, he says steadfast prayer helps distinguish between our impetuous, ill-conceived, selfish desires and sincere, deep-seated, Christ-exalting ones. It's almost like as we have to continue to press into God in prayer, as we petition Him, it's like the weeds are being pulled out of our lives. And we're coming to see that some of these things that we've been asking for, we're only asking for out of our own selfish desires rather than for the glory of God. Fifth, he said, steadfast prayer, it purifies what we're asking for. Very similar to the previous one, but a little bit distinct because when we're forced to pray for something over and over and over again, it's almost like we have to proofread our prayers. Right, the proofreading process when you wrote an essay in school. Some of you are like, well, I'm there now. But you have to proofread, right? You gotta go back and reread what you wrote to ensure, listen, I'm terrible at this. That's why I send it to people who are communications professionals, right? So ask them to proofread anything that I write so that they can go in and say, hey, the grammar here needs some correction. Or the way that you use this phrase, I would cut this out to run on sentence, which I am notorious for, right? I tend to write like I preach, just in these thoughts that just continue to billow out, right? But so you gotta go back and proofread those things. And as you proofread it, what happens? In the editing process, it gets cleaned up, more specified. And the same is true with our prayers. When we're forced to pray for something over and over and over again, oftentimes that prayer changes. It gets purified. Some of, some of the things, that get, they just get burned off and burned away, and the prayer becomes more pure because we realize that's not exactly how I should be asking for that. Sixth, and finally, he said, steadfast prayer cultivates patience on our part as we learn how to wait on the Lord whenever he delays. Listen, if you drive in our area, really any time of the day now, you've come to, either one of two things have happened to you. You've gotten arrested for road rage or you've come to develop some patience, right? Because as traffic has increased, it's required higher and higher degrees of patience on our part to navigate the landscape. And sometimes when God delays, when there's a red light that we're sitting at behind 30 other cars waiting for our turn to go. When God delays, it's almost God saying, forcing us to learn to wait on Him. Because we don't naturally do that well. So this kind of steadfast prayer that's commanded in the passage, Paul says, it's not just because God is some arbitrary deity, but rather it is purposeful as you keep pressing in and pressing in and pressing in. He's shaping you. He's shaping the things that you ask for. He's teaching you. He's cultivating character so that whenever you are ready to receive what he has to give, that you can receive it gladly with thankful hearts 
and be ready for it. It's the first thing that he says here is that we ought to persist in prayer. Now, I want you to notice the specific thing that Paul requests prayer for in his situation. Okay? And that's the second thing this morning is this, is that not only do we persist in prayer, but we ought to persist in prayer for effective evangelism. Now notice the order in the text, okay? Somebody told me somewhere in a seminary classroom that one of the ways authors communicate meaning is through the way they order the passage that they're writing. Before Paul says in verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, and before he says, make most of every opportunity with this kind of salty speech, and before he says, like pray that we would be a, uh, make clear the gospel to uh, those that we come into contact with, before he says any of that, before he talks about proclamation, before he says, pray for us that we would be clear and courageous in the way that we communicate the gospel. And so here's the principle, that prayer precedes proclamation. It precedes preaching. It precedes witnessing. It precedes speech as we try to share our faith with others. In other words, before you communicate about God with men, you commune with God. You communicate with God about men before you communicate with men about God. That prayer precedes proclamation because if we really believe that human beings are dead in sin, meaning they're spiritually lifeless and they cannot affect their own resuscitation because they're not, they're not just like on a, in a coma, right? But they're dead. D-E-D, right? As they would say in the country. They're spiritually lifeless and must be resurrected, not resuscitated, then you and I are powerless to affect resurrection in their lives with the power of God at work on the soul. So what else do we do before we speak with men about God other than speaking to God about men? God, would you meet them in their situation and bring them to life? Now, check out Paul's specific prayer request in verse three of the text. Paul, who says he's in prison, so he's likely under house arrest in the Roman Empire for preaching the gospel. He says, that's why they put me under house arrest, because I've been preaching the mystery of Christ. I've been proclaiming the gospel. So now I've been imprisoned because I've been talking about Jesus as Lord in a land where only Caesar is Lord. So I'm under house arrest, and he asked the Colossian church to pray this specific request. Petition God for me that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Now that is an astonishing prayer request for me when I read it. Because listen, if I was in prison or under house arrest because of I, I'd been preaching the gospel, I would write you a letter and say, would you pray to the Lord on my behalf that I'd be released from prison? Paul's not praying, asking the church to pray for him that he'd be released from prison. But that God would open a door for the word so that others might be rescued by the grace and goodness of God in Jesus Christ. In his situation, Paul's praying for clarity of speech rather than clemency. 
Paul's praying for courage rather than compassion from his captors. In other words, Paul says, may my present circumstances serve to advance the gospel and would you pray that God would make that true, that he would open a door for the word to go forth here where I am. He says literally, pray that my situation would manifest. What did that word manifest mean? To make plain, to show forth the beauty and the glory and the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So Paul says, pray not for an open door for me, but for my message to go forth, for the gospel to be proclaimed. So essentially we're praying for entrance for the word, the powerful, dynamic, transformative, and never changing message of the gospel that it would walk into the lives through an open door of those who are around Paul under house arrest. That's mind-blowing to me. That is not the first thing I would ask you to pray for if I were in prison. I'm just being transparent. But Paul says pray that we would be effective evangelists here where God has placed me. These circumstances that I find myself in, that they would serve the greater glory of God and good of those who are around me who hear me testify of the grace of God in my life, of the goodness of God in my life. Pray that God would swing wide a door and the word would walk in and that it would bring them to life. It would bring resurrection for dead people. Pray for effective evangelism. It's near to the heart of God. I'm not saying that it's wrong to pray for a job. I'm not saying that it's wrong to pray for healing. I'm not saying that it's wrong to pray for God's provision, for God's protection. I'm not saying that it's wrong for any of those things that we might pray for, for our kids to walk in the truth. But I wonder how often we find ourselves under the pressure cooker, under hard life circumstances, and that our request in a life group is, hey, folks who know and love me and care for me, would you pray that this circumstance would serve as an open door for the message of the gospel? Would you pray that this loss of a loved one would serve as an open door? Would you pray that this job loss serve as an open door? Would you pray Would you pray that the mounting bills serve as an open door? Would you pray? Would you pray that my child's waywardness serve as an open door? I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for them to come back. What I'm saying, would you, would you, would we lift our eyes and see the bigger picture, and like Paul say, in this present circumstance, would you pray that God would open a door for the word? That I'd be an effective evangelist, here and now, not on the other side of it. One day, whenever I can stand and give this great testimony of how the Lord delivered, but in the midst of it, 
And then the third thing I want to draw your attention to out of the text this morning is this. Is that the specific request that you pray is for it to be an effective evangelist persistently. I believe Paul would tell us that not only do we pray, but we pay as we pray. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you this way, tell you what I mean. Uh, many, many moons ago, okay, uh, before fate was becoming what it is today, all right, when, we, when, when my wife and I moved to Rock, Rockwall County in 2002, uh, and we drove out to Fate, and Fate was a little small community of about less than 1,000 people, okay? Uh, Wood Creek Subdivision had just begun, like there were model homes sitting out there, okay? They were, maybe, like I said, maybe 1,000 people here in the city of Fate, probably less than that. This population science that when we moved here uh, still said 600, okay? So very small rural farming community. And yet, even prior to our moving here, there were individuals who saw the trajectory of growth, who saw the, the suburban sprawl moving further and further out. And so these sometimes very large limited liability corporations, LLCs, they came in and along I-30, they conducted what's called land speculation. In other words, they bought up all kinds of fields along I-30 between Rockwall and Royce City. So it all came into the hands of these LLCs and they bought it at perhaps $10,000 an acre, right? Many, many, many years ago. And they held on to that property. They made an investment at that time. They bought it up at a particular price because they envisioned that as growth took place and the community around it developed, that that property would do what? It would rise in price. And sure enough, it has. All right? $10,000 an acre, you might get .05 acres for 10 grand in fate right now, right? So it has astronomically risen in price and that investment that they made years ago by buying up whatever they could at that time has now provided a dividend in the future as they invested long term because for some of these folks, the return is coming 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years after the initial investment. And listen, church, I believe that's to a large degree what relational evangelism looks like. It's a long-term investment strategy in which we are loving and serving of care and compassion and pointedly speaking the truth upon occasions as God opens doors for the word to walk through that we share the truth in those moments as we have loved and served those who are around us. Relational evangelism is a long-term evangelism strategy. Gracious speech, compassionate service, pointed truth. But we make investments today with the view that we would reap a return one day. And so we're paying as we pray. 
We're investing as we petition, asking God, open doors, and we keep trying to find opportunities. We're looking with our head on a swivel for moments that God might give us an opportunity, an open door for the word. And I believe in this passage, Paul gives us at least five ways that we pay as we pray. Right? And again, Sam Storms was helpful in this to me this week as well. And so I want to share with you his observations from this passage. He says, first of all, what does it look like to pay as we pray? First of all, being wise toward non-Christians. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. You know, it's how, this is the first way we begin to make that investment relationally in people. I'm reminded of Matthew chapter seven, verse six, where Jesus says, do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot to attack you. See, wisdom at times, if we're gonna walk in wisdom towards those who are non-Christians, wisdom at times requires that we be discerning to when we speak and to whom we speak. All right, sometimes we need to be bold and forthright. Other times, on other occasions, because of perhaps calloused and hostile hearts, we need to keep our mouths quiet and just serve and love and look for an occasion in the future where God begins to melt that resistance and we're able to speak pointed truth. That's what it looks like to walk in wisdom is to know when to speak and to know how to speak. I think wisdom also looks like what John Piper wrote about this passage. He said, wisdom is knowing what to do for the glory of God when the rule book runs out. I love the way he says that. He says, I can do, it's knowing how to become all things to all men without compromising holiness and truth. It is creativity and tact and thoughtfulness. It's having a feel for the moment and having an eye for what people need. That's what it is to walk in wisdom, to be sensitive to the occasions, the circumstances surrounding people's lives, the trials that they are going through, right? I know there have been moments in my own life where I have not walked in wisdom toward outsiders and in the midst of a moment, I've tried to bring some spiritual nugget to someone who was hurting when all they really needed was my presence. And I've had to learn that the hard way. Because sometimes walking in wisdom to those who are hurting, who are outside, is they just need someone to be a faithful presence in their life to say, I'm not going anywhere. Second thing that he says, not only walk in wisdom toward outsiders, but he says make the best use of the time. I think, church, we ought to recognize the urgency. The urgency for evangelism. See, in verses five and six, Paul turns his attention from his own evangelistic efforts saying, pray that the door would open for us to walk, for the word to walk through. And he begins to focus on the evangelistic efforts of the church. And he says essentially this, that we ought to buy up every available moment, make the best use of the time. A quite literal rendering of the Greek word there is that we ought to make, the, we ought to buy it up. We ought to purchase it. One commentator said it this way, he said, we ought to snap up every opportunity as it comes. Another commentator says it even more to the point. He says, in an open market where the commodity is time, 
Well, it's on sale. He says Christians are to make a timely purchase for themselves. In other words, they're to seize eagerly and use wisely every opportunity afforded them by time to promote the kingdom of God. That we're looking to buy the time, to use the time, to make best use of it in every moment that we can. To buy up time at times with outsiders so that we can pray and look for an open door for the word. Listen, Paul doesn't have to tell us buy up time with insiders, with our friends. We're pretty good at that. We make time for that. But I've had to look in the mirror this week and realize that I don't always do a good job of buying up time with non-Christians, of spending time with people outside of the faith to where they can see the, re- the real realities of my life, the struggles that I have. They can get a glimpse into my own soul and so I can look for an opportunity for the word to walk in. There's an urgency, church. We're living, as, as many scholars would say, in this already but not yet. Right? The kingdom of God has already been inaugurated, but it has not yet been consummated. One day it will be, but in this time, we're to make the best use of the time that God gives us for his kingdom advancement. Recognize the urgency and pay as you pray. Third, be gracious. He says your speech is to be gracious speech. And essentially, this is to say that we are to be <laughs> as charming as possible without crossing the line into compromise. There should be a winsomeness about the way that we speak. See, what matters is not just simply the content. There's some, some people who have all the content, right? All the boxes checked off, but they are harsh and they are abrasive and they're just mean <laughs> to others, right? Versus the, on the other side, there's peop, there are people who are incredibly winsome and charismatic, but they compromise the truth. It's not an either or. It's a both and. That our speech is to be gracious. That is to be compassionate, filled with our words to be compassionate, winsome, wooing others with our speech so they don't walk away going, man, that guy or that gal is really smart, but they're really a jerk. Is your speech gracious towards those outside? You must, we must care about the truth, but we also must care about how it's conveyed. Are we gracious to others in our speech? Not only should our speech be gracious, but fourth, is to be seasoned with salt. It's to be savory. See, there's no virtue in being dull or insipid in the way that we present the gospel. All right, Sam Storms makes a comment in his book and it's about a professor he had at Dallas Seminary. I had the same professor who made the same comment in the classroom whenever I took him, right? That's what professors do, and preachers, by the way. Right? They just store up really good nuggets and they drop them uh, multiple times over the years. But Howard Hendricks, since has gone to be with the Lord, but he was often heard to say in his classroom, he says, according to the old adage, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. He said, that's true but you can feed him salt. (laughs) And as you feed him salt, he becomes thirsty. 
And as he becomes thirsty, he begins to drink. So the question is, do we talk of Christ in a way that makes people's mouths water? It makes them thirsty for the word. Do our words and our manner convey and create the opportunity for spiritual thirst to emerge? As the psalmist says in Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. When people are around us, do they get a sense of the goodness of God and the way that we speak of him? That he's altogether lovely and should be made known in an un, or should not be made known in an unlovely or un savory manner. And then fifth, Sam Storm said, speak to each as they have need. Now, what I think he means by that, as you look at Colossians chapter three, or I'm sorry, Colossians chapter four, he says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. As I, he, I don't think Paul means that we should speak the same way to everyone, but we're to speak appropriately to each separate person depending upon the needs in their lives. Have a degree of discernment, and that's why it requires prayer. Because you, you left to your own devices are not going to see what's, what type of word or, or disposition somebody needs. Because not everyone hears the gospel the same way. Some encounter Christ with with, and you've probably experienced this before in your own life, with deep probing intellectual questions, right? About creation. Others, ex- others uh, experience uh, Christ through deep emotional tribulation. Right? Others through significant trial or deeply entrenched sinful habits. So as we engage in evangelism, it's not meant to be kind of a monolithic experience where, right, I've got the four spiritual laws, I just pull them out on a napkin, and I give them to you, and you pray the prayer, and we get to be baptized, right? That's not exactly how relational evangelism works. It's not a monolith. But rather, there's a dynamic reality to it. Now, we're we're all pointing people to one Savior, Each person's at a different stage of life, right? You may talk to a teenager differently than you would talk to an empty nester about their need for Christ. Perhaps you would talk to a young adult in their 20s different than you would parents of teens about their need for Christ. It's the same Jesus they need, but they find themselves in positions and places facing various trials that would allow the communication of the word to them to resonate more deeply. And so speak to each one as they have need. As each one has varying degrees of understanding. Right? You might speak to someone who's been in church all of their life from the time they were born into their mid-20s, but has never come to faith in Jesus, they have more categories in their mind to, that are full of understanding, even though that spark has not been lit yet. Rather than someone who's never darkened the doors of a church, never opened the pages of the Bible, and for them, Jesus is just somebody they've heard about on in movies or in television series, oftentimes in very profane ways. You would speak to that person differently than, you want, than the one who's raised in church all their lives, even though you're pointing them to the same Jesus. 
as each has need. So you pay as you pray. Pay as you pray, making a long-term investment in relational evangelism, petitioning God, would you open a door for the word? Would you open a door for the word? Would you open a door for the word? As Paul begins to land the plan in Colossians, he tells the church, pray and evangelize. Two things which are lacking in many churches and in many lives. I hope this morning that we would hear Paul's call and that God would make prayer to us like meat is to my dog and that we would sit at the foot of the table and we would whimper and whine as we wait to be fed. Let us pray. Father, I acknowledge in my own life that I do not pray as I should and I do not share the gospel as I ought. Father, there are moments but on a whole this is an area in which you have convicted me. Would you help me be a man of prayer who brings petitions before you, asking you to do things that only you are able to do? Would you grow me through that? Would you shape my character through that, my patience, burn away selfish desires as I wait on you? And help me to pray about things that are near to your heart, not just near to mine the salvation of souls who are lost and destined for an eternity apart from you. But help me to make long-term relational investments as I pray. And as I speak, may it be gracious speech, may it be savory speech that creates a thirst in the lives of those who would hear Would you give me wisdom to know when to speak and not to speak? Wisdom to know when to remain quiet and just serve and be present. Wisdom to know when to speak pointedly with truth. And the discernment to know how to address different people in different places. Father, would you open a door for the word? Would you give me the courage to walk through it? I pray the same for my friends here this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Church, I invite you to stand this morning as we respond in song to what the Lord has said to us through his word today. If you have questions about the message, I'll be in the back as we're dismissed. I'd love to connect with you, pray with you answer any questions about the sermon or about the church, feel free to stop by on your way out. But would you lift your voice this morning as we remember that as we walk forward in this life, in this battle that's before us, that the war has already been won. 
And so we can petition God with confidence knowing that he's got it. Hey, this is Pastor Shannon, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through his word. And if you don't know Jesus as your savior, I invite you to trust him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church, but tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.